For the past several weeks, of course, we missed last week because we were busy uh, stuffing eggs for the Easter egg hunt. But uh, for the past several weeks, we've been looking at what the book of Revelation shows us about who Jesus is. And we talked about the whole point of the book of Revelation. And the, the, the truth is, the, the entire point of the book of Revelation, as we're coming to the conclusion of our study next week, uh, but the entire point of the book of Revelation is in its title. Because it's not just the book of Revelation. It's not just Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The entire point of the book is, okay, you can see this, uh, you can see that, you understand this thing, you beheld this, you know, war, famine, pestilence, tribulation, demons, you see all of that, but the point of the book of Revelation is to say, lift up your eyes and see See who Jesus is. Look at Jesus. See his greatness. See the revelation of Jesus. We've seen him as the, as the Lord over human history. We, we've seen him as Lord in tragedy. We've seen him revealed as love during tribulation. And the whole point of the book of Revelation is not, as we said, it's not Jesus telling scary stories to kids around a campfire. The book of Revelation is not intended to scare us as followers of Jesus at all. <coughs> Excuse me. The book of Revelation was intended to encourage us that, that no matter what, the revelation of Jesus is the transcendent reality, and that's what you're left with. Uh, it begins with Jesus, it ends with Jesus, and that's the reality. So, now for tonight's uh, study, we're, I want you to take your Bible and turn to the 20th chapter of, of Revelation. We're going to read portions from the final three chapters of the book of Revelation. Let's uh, read a beginning in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in, uh, in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should, de that he should uh, deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a little while. I saw thrones and, and they sat on them and the authority to judge was given to them. And I saw the book of souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness of, of Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and, and, and reigned with, G, with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be set free from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They traveled the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of, of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne of him who was seated and him who was seated on it. 
From his face the earth and the heavens fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one by his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. I, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Look, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Neither shall there be any more sorrow, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. Then he said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the spring of the water of life to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abomination, or excuse me, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their portion in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. Now look at chapter 22, beginning in verse 6. The angel said to me, "These these words are faithful and true. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am he who saw and heard these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, see that you, uh, see that you not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brothers, the prophets, and all of those who keep the words of the, of the book. Worship God. Then he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to give to each one according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Tip O'Neill is a name that many of you that are younger won't recognize, but those that have been around a little longer, you'll remember the name. He was a former Speaker of the House of Representatives, and he once said, all politics is local politics. And I want to paraphrase that statement, if I can, to say this. And that is, all cosmic and transcendent truth is personal truth. In other words, 
what Tip O'Neill was saying, there are huge political issues, national, international, global political truths. However, when you reduce it to the microcosm of the guy living in a slum in South Boston, all he cares about is his life, what's happening with him. And Tip O'Neill said that you can't go to that guy when you're running for Congress and, and talk about what's happening in Europe. For him, the reality is, does he have a paycheck? Does he have a job? Who's representing him in Washington? Who's sticking up for him? And I want to say this to you. I, I believe in all of the great prophetic and apocalyptic realities of the book of Revelation, Someday the eastern sky is going to break open from pole to pole. Someday the trump, the last trump will sound and Jesus will appear and, and we're going to cast off all gravity. And the Bible says that it does not yet appear what we shall be. In other words, nobody, uh, the, the world, the, the flesh, the devil, not demons, not humans, not your spouse or your kids. Nobody can look at you in the condition in which you find yourself today and see what you're going to look like when Jesus appears. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. I believe that. And by the way, the twinkling of an eye is not, it's not the bat of an eyelid. The twinkling of an eye is the time that it takes light to be refracted and reflected in your eyeball. Faster than the speed of light. Pow! Just like that, you'll be changed. Transformed. You'll cast off gravity. You rise to meet Him in the air. And the church militant, militant down here below will become the church triumphant above. I believe that. I, I believe that Satan will be bound and cast into hell. I believe that death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. I believe in the white throne judgment. I believe in all of those things. But with that said, I want to say this to you. All truth is personal truth. And when I say that, I'm not saying that truth is defined personally by what you believe. That's not what I mean at all. But I'm saying that all truth ultimately has a personal application. And that is what all that really matters to people individually. I believe in all these things, but for the guy who stands before the throne of God on the, on the, in the last day, He's not going to carry anything uh, about anything else except for his own personal judgment. I believe that, that one of the reasons that modern Christians are not motivated to be soul winners is because we tend to think in cosmic terms and not in personal terms. I urge you, consume the book of Revelation and let it be reduced down to its smallest reality. That, that that one person, don't think in cosmic terms, don't think about the judgment of nations. That's all fine. That's all, that's all in there. And I believe in that. But I'm saying to you, think in terms of the one guy who stands before the white throne judgment of Christ. For him, none of those cosmic ideas will make any difference. And he won't care about any of that. All he'll know is that it is his personal moment of judgment. I counsel you to, to make that one of the presiding realities over your life, that, that your next door neighbor, your relative, your unsaved friend, your, your backslidden roommate, your backslidden spouse, that one person is the whole issue in this passage of the book of Revelation, that that person will stand before the judgment seat of God. Listen, I, I believe that I have preached in this church a message of grace. 
I believe in the grace of God. I, I believe in the forgiveness of God. I believe in the mercy of God. I know that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I know all of these things. However, sometimes I believe that in our efforts to emphasize the saving grace and the loving faithfulness of Christ, we fail to tell people of the impending judgment of God. Sometimes we get to the place where we're, we're, we're just so embarrassed. We're, we're just embarrassed. I hear people push back all the time. All that, that hellfire and brimstone preaching, it's just old-fashioned. It's just useless today. And I know, I know we ought not rough up our audiences just for the sake of roughing them up and sounding, uh, making things sound bad. I know that people don't ultimately get saved because they were scared into it. In fact, people who are scared into getting saved, eventually that fright wears off and then they walk away from it. It's about the kindness of God in the midst of all of that. Nevertheless, there has to be a place where we find the courage to tell people the whole truth about the biblical reality. There is going to come a moment of judgment. God does forgive. God is merciful. However, it says from the moment of the white throne judgment on, from that moment on, the condition that a person is in is fixed. He who is unjust, let him remain unjust still. He, he who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. That's what he's talking about. It's not going to change after that. If, if you think for one moment that in the final judgment of a person or of humanity as a whole, that God is going to say, I'm just going to give you one last chance. He's not going to at that moment in time. He's going to say to people that we love, people that we care about, He's going to say, I gave you a last chance. I gave you 10,000 last chances. I gave you 10 million last chances. There'll be no last minute chance. There's going to be a, a moment of terrible, awful judgment. And in that moment, the condition of each person will be fixed. Unchangeable. It says outside there will be dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and liars and it will be fixed. Let him who is filthy remain filthy still. Let him who is unjust be unjust still. Let him who is, liar, who is a liar be a liar still. It will be set in that moment. And I believe that that moment at the white throne judgment is going to be more horrible than anything we dare to think of or imagine. I don't like to think about it. As a pastor, I, 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 the truth is I, I feel like I don't have the right to preach on hell unless I have tears in my eyes. I've heard guys preach on hell and they were, they were right with the words they used. They were right in their doctrine. They were right in, in, the, in their Bible knowledge, but they were wrong in their spirits because they seem to be saying, you're going to hell, you deserve it, God likes it, and, and I'm just thrilled about it. That's not scriptural. That's not the mind of God and that's not the spirit of Christ. In fact, we know that scripture tells us that God doesn't want anybody to perish. However, by the same token, I have to know that I owe it to my friends, neighbors and acquaintances to say to them, there is a judgment coming. I don't take any delight in it. 
I don't look forward to it. I'm not going to stand over on the sidelines and say, oh, you you finally got what's coming to you. I've heard that spirit. I've heard it in regard to human suffering. That that that's not the mind of Christ. You know, some 19 year old boy laying up in a hospital bed with dying of AIDS and and then these smug, self-righteous, sanctimonious church people say, well, he just got what was coming to him. Listen, my friend, the truth is none of us want what's coming to us. Well, he got what he deserved. And they say that as if they believe they deserve something different. <laughs> and they don't. I'm telling you, you don't want what you deserve. If we get what we deserve, we're all going to hell. You can take that to the bank right now. You don't want what you deserve. That's not the mind of Christ. All right, that kid lying in the hospital, maybe he had a thousand sexual partners since the time he was, from the time he was 13 to 19, lying in a bed with a tube down his throat and his body, uh, in, in, just an emaciated skeleton covered with oozing sores and dying with AIDS. All right, yes, he bought and paid for it. However, if you think Jesus stands at the foot of that bed and says, serves you right, then you have no idea who Jesus is. Jesus kneels at the foot of that bed and washes his bleeding feet with his tears and says, oh, my son, oh, my son, look what you've done. Look what you've done. There has to be roadblock after roadblock after roadblock after roadblock after roadblock between the sinner in your life and the white throne judgment of God. If you don't put up those roadblocks, if you don't stop him, if you don't warn him, if you don't halt him or hinder his progress toward that judgment, then the judgment day of Christ will, in a sense, carry judgment over even for the saved and, and for those who are saved and yet are careless. There will be a sense in which those as they stand before the white throne judgment of Christ and they will accept their judgment because they have no choice. They will go to hell because there's the decree in that moment of the sovereign, almighty, omnipotent God. There'll be no arguing. However, I dread the thought that they might turn just as they walk over to the cliff into the abyss and, and turn and look into one of our eyes and say, you never warned me. God forbid. God forbid. You know, my goal is your pastor. My goal as a preacher is to pour into you the great doctrine of grace. However, we need to understand the doctrine of grace means nothing if we don't understand the impending judgment. Why do we need grace? Because without grace, this is where we all stand. My goal is, is to... Pour into you that great doctrine of grace. However, if this truth is in the Bible that we're just reading, we have to either take it out of there or we have to deal with it on a personal level because all cosmic truth is personal truth. There has to come a moment where, obviously, where you, you hold that shivering, vomiting, hallucinating drunk in your arms and say, I still love you, I still love you. However, there also has to come a moment when you look them in the eye and with tears in your eyes streaming down your face, you say, oh, dear God, you don't know what's coming for you. Listen to this. Suppose you're driving along on a rain-slicked highway the rain is pelting your windshield to the point where you can hardly see. 
this part of the country, you've seen those kind of rainstorms. You know what I'm talking about. Suddenly up ahead of you, you realize that something is wrong. So you, you jam your foot on the brake pedal and you skid to, to stop right on the edge of a cliff. And you realize that the bridge over that, over that gorge has collapsed and fallen in. And you're like, whew, uh, uh, you're saved. Whew, that was so close. Another millimeter, another, another roll of your tires and you would have gone into a seemingly bottomless gorge and you stand there with the rain pouring down and you're saying, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Then behind you, up the highway, lights appear. You see headlights coming fast through the rain. Suddenly you realize somebody else is coming. So you leave your flashers going and you run back up the highway and, and flag the car down and it, it skids to a stop in front of you and you, you walk up, you run up to the window and you, and you talk to him and you, and you say, look, the, the bridge is out. The, the bridge is out up there. The bridge is out. Don't go anywhere. Don't, you have to stop. The bridge is out. And the guy looks at you and says, oh, I've heard about all, all those theories about bridges. I have my own beliefs about bridges. And you look at me and say, are you, are you crazy? I'm not talking about theoretical, theoretical engineering. The bridge is out. No, 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 he says. I've driven this highway a million times. There, there's a bridge up there. I don't know what you're trying to pull here. But as I said before, I have my own beliefs about those bridges. You say, say look, are you, are you insane? The bridge is out. My, my car is up there, right there. You, can you, do you see the flashers? I stopped right at the edge. I nearly plunged to my death. Let, let me give you my testimony. I nearly went in. I nearly went. Can't you see my car? The bridge is out. And he starts to roll his window up and says, don't meddle with my life. If I want to drive over that cliff, what is that to you? Now butt out. He continues to roll his window up and then you look past him in the passenger seat. You see that there's a woman, a young mother, and you look into the back seat and there you see two little children in their car seats. And you say, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you want to drive your car over the cliff, that's your choice. But will you let them out? Let your wife and your children out. Let them find safety. Let them stay with me. And he says, my family is none of your business now. Get out of the way. And you stand there with the rain pouring down over you. And he guns the engine. And as he guns the engine, you scream, the bridge is out. Now that's the grief and the pain of a personal evangelist. If you don't feel that, you'll never really have the compassion or the passion or the love or the tenderness to win anybody to Christ. You see, a cold-eyed statement, you know, a presentation of the four spiritual laws somewhere isn't really going to touch anybody because it hasn't really touched you. Until you have stood there yourself and imagined not only the resplendent glory of Christ, but also the horror, the, the terror as that white throne descends and you stand there naked and all of your wickedness and abominations are exposed, not only to the eyes of a judging Christ, but to the eyes of the whole universe. And, and you know that, 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 that he who is filthy will be filthy still and a sense of hopelessness and despair and the horror of the cosmic reality encloses on you personally 
family. Until you've stood there, you cannot say with passion and compassion to those around you, the lost, the, the undone, the sinful, the doomed, and the, or, and the damned. Oh, please listen to me. Please. The bridge is out. Until you stand there and grasp the reality of that moment, there won't be that driving passion in you because you've never seen it at a personal level. As long as you allow the great horror of the judgment seat of Christ at the end of all things to be a cosmic smear on your windshield, it'll never really drive you to be a soul winner. Until it becomes personal to you, it won't really matter to you, not the way it should. But if you can bring into your mind that, that one cousin, that, that little brother, that high school classmate, that friend of yours, that ex-boyfriend, that ex-girlfriend. Now, now, I'm not inviting you to judge and determine who's saved and who's not saved. You, you can say to yourself, as clear as I can tell, as clear as I can understand, there's no saving faith in Christ in their life. There's an abiding sense of sin. There is lostness. Every indication is that he's about to drive over the cliff. And until you can bring yourself to that place where you can imagine that person hearing the horrible judgment after all of the grace, all the forgiveness, all of the preaching, all of the sermons, all of the Bible lessons that they've heard finally come to a terrible, horrifying end. Until you can see that person standing before the judgment seat of Christ, you'll never really be a driven, passionate, compassionate evangelist, soul winner. I'm not just talking about the guy who stands on the platform and preaches. I'm not talking about, you know, guys like Billy Graham. I'm talking about the guy who says to his friend across the hedge while they're both working on the yards, hey, Bob, let me talk to you about something. Because you know that last night he beat the day living daylights out of his wife and he's living in sin and violence and alcoholism. The cops come on Saturday night to his house and on Sunday morning you put your church clothes on and tuck your Bible under your arm and load up your wife and your kids in the car and head off to Restoration Life Church and you know that last night there was hell on earth in the house next door. Your wife says to you, maybe you ought to go next door and see Bob and you're saying, no, 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 no. I don't want to come on too strong. I might run him off. Can I tell you something? He's already off. He's off. The fact of the matter is, it, it may be a mixture of other things, all kinds of things that keeps us from telling people about the truth. The fear of looking arrogant or presumptuous, the fear of interfering, the fear of rejection. I mean, nobody, nobody likes the feeling of having your neighbor slam the door in your face and telling you to get out of their yard. No, nobody likes that feeling. But you know what I found in 37 years of ministry? I found that if you go talk to someone with a broken heart, with tears in your eyes and genuine, authentic compassion, I've had very few doors slammed in my face. A pastor that I know, he, he was doing door-to-door -door soul winning in a town in Georgia one time, and he knocked on the door of a mobile home, and this guy opened the door and stood there, had a bottle of whiskey in, in one hand, grabbed a, had a hold of it by the, the neck of that bottle. And there were two pathetic looking children playing on the floor behind him. And he opened the door and saw this pastor standing there and just said, are you selling something? From behind the wife screamed, tell him to go, go away. The pastor said, listen, my friend, I, 
I, I, I, don't, I don't want anything from you. I'm not selling anything. I'm not inviting you to anything. I, I don't have anything for you. I just came to knock on this door right here to tell you one thing. And that thing is this. No matter what, no matter what, no matter what happened last night, no matter what happened this morning, that God really loves you. He cares about your wife. He cares about your kids. He cares about you. He stood there, this big tough guy, tattoos all over him, holding a whiskey bottle in his hand. You know what he did? As soon as the pastor said that, he put that bottle behind his back as if the pastor hadn't seen it. And he said, would you like to come in? The pastor said, I really would. An hour and a half later, that guy, his wife, and the oldest child prayed with that pastor to receive Christ. And he didn't walk into that place saying, oh, you filthy drunk. God hates you, and I hope you go to hell when you die. You deserve it. Now, we know, yes, there is some risk in soul winning. There, there's going to be some door slammed in your face. There are going to be some people that will push you away. There's going to be some rejection. However, if the bridge is genuinely out, if this is real, what choice do we really have? If this is real, how else could we respond? I mean, is, is God just talking here? Is he is just trying to scare the kids here? Or, or is this real? Is there going to come a moment when the white throne descends? You know, an officer in the Salvation Army told of a man who came to his Salvation Army post where, where he was the pastor. And this man, this man who came had never been in church before, didn't know anything about the gospel, but he got saved. He just walked into the Salvation Army post and got saved. The next afternoon, the man came to the pastor's office and said, Captain, I need, to, I need to ask you something. I've done something, and I need to ask you what I need to do to fix it. And the Salvation Army captain said, oh, so, all right, so what have you done? The man said, well, I went to get my hair cut this morning. I went to the same barbershop that I've gone to for 15 years. The guy put the sheet around me and turned on the clippers. And I said, wait, wait a minute. Before you cut my hair, I need to tell you something. Yesterday, I went down to the Salvation Army. I found out about Jesus and that he died for us and that he loves us and that he is willing to forgive us. And yesterday, he said, I walked up to the front of that church and gave my life to Christ. He washed me in the blood, forgave me of my sins, and I'm saved. The man said, I turned to that barber and said, you've been cutting my hair for 15 years. I like you. I care for you. Now I want to tell you that Jesus loves you and he died for you. The man said, that barber laughed and said, are you crazy? I'm a Christian. I go to church every Sunday. And the man said, pastor, I just jerked that sheet off of me and jumped out of that chair and said, I've been coming here for 15 years. I've been in here for 15 years. I've been through two wives, five jobs, and, and I've lost myself in the bottom of a whiskey bottle. I've drunk myself nearly to death. I've lived in sin. I've come in here when my hands were shaking so badly that you almost had to hold me down while you're cutting my hair. 15 years, and you never once mentioned Christ to me? 15 years right down the toilet? You, you, you knew this, and you never once said anything to me about it? He said, I got up, I walked out of that barbershop and he said, Pastor, here's my question. Do I owe that man an apology? Should I go back and apologize? I've been, a, I'm a new Christian. I've been a Christian for 12 hours. I don't know what to do. Should I go back? Do I owe that man an apology? And the Salvation Army officer said, I don't know if you owe him an apology or not, but I know he owes you one.
You know, I just hate the, the idea, the, the very idea that we would come into a Christ-centered environment, service after service, week after week, month after month, year after year. I, I hate even the idea that we, that we might not walk that we might not walk out of here with mixed feelings. Because I want you walking out saying, thank God I'm a Christian. Thank, thank God I'm saved. Thank God my name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank God I'm walking with the Lord. However, I also want there to be some place in your heart where you clutch your Bible in your hand as, and you walk out of this building saying, there are people that I know that I care about, people that I love, people that I'm going to meet on, uh, in, this, in this community, people that I'm going to do business with that are going to die and go into an, to an everlasting, horrible, unimaginable, unspeakable hell if I don't hinder them, if I don't stop them. I want that to be in us. Listen, I want you to be successful in every way imaginable, but that's not all I want. I want you to be great at your job, but that's not all I want. I want you to be great teachers and businessmen and nurses and whatever you do for a living, but that's not all I want. I want all those good things for you, but that's not all I want. You know what I want? I want to unleash you on the world as compassionate broken-hearted soul winners who will stand in the middle of the highway with tears streaming down your face and panic in your voice and say, the bridge is out! The bridge is out! And then offer the solution of Jesus. Revelation 22, 12 through 14 said, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to give to each one according to his work. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Then verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel, my messenger to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. And then the passage ends with this. We didn't read this earlier, but this is what verse 17 says. The spirit and the bride Say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who is thirsty come. Let him who desires take the water of life freely. The spirit and the bride say, come. You know, we live in an age of such biblical and spiritual confusion. People don't know the difference between Gandhi and Jesus. They don't know the difference between prayerful, biblical living and hanging crystals on their rearview mirror and reading the astrology section of the newspaper. We're living in an age of deep, deep spiritual and moral confusion. People living in sin year after year after year that have no idea that they have offended the holiness of God. They need to hear the wonderful Good news, not only the, the scary bad truth, but it's there and we have to say it. We have to preach it. We have to know that, that, it, that, it, that it is there, that the final moment is there, that the bridge is out. However, they also, they need to hear. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. They need to hear the wonderful, simple, glorious truth that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin and 
that a person whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life will never, ever stand before the white throne judgment. I, I know the white throne judgment is a scary thought, but it's not for you. It has nothing to do with you. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, it's not about you. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, you're, you're not going to be judged in that moment. That's, and that's the glorious invitation. We make the same invitation that the Holy Spirit makes. The Spirit and the bride both say, come, come in. The Spirit and the bride both say, come in to the wicked and, and the sinful and the abominable and the liars, to hookers and drug addicts and prostitutes, to homosexuals and adulterers, and, and to the lost and the confused and the undone, to say to them all, yes, that will condemn you. Yes, that will curse you. Yes, that will keep you outside. Sorcerers and liars and sexually immoral and murderers and idolatries. Yes, that will condemn you, but it doesn't have to. There is a great, wonderful, glorious truth. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wash your robes and be clean and come in. The doors are wide open. They'll close one day. They're going to close. Just as God closed the door on the ark and, and the flood came and the earth was judged, the doors will finally close. There'll be no more conversions then. There'll be no more repentance. There'll be no more gospel preaching. It's going to be over. However, right now, the doors are wide open. The door is wide open. And the cross still saves. On April 7th, 1942, an American fighter pilot named Clarence Sanford was shot down by the Japanese and he crashed into the Pacific near a dangerous island that was filled with cannibals near Papua New Guinea. He washed up on the beach and when he did he hit his head and, and uh, was knocked unconscious and those dangerous cannibals found him lying there and and as one of them raised his weapon over his head to kill him that pilot shirt fell open and around his neck was a cross. And they said, ah, that, that's the sign of the missionaries. And so they gathered him up and carried him to the missionaries. And he was, life, his life was saved. Clarence Sanford wrote in his diary later, unconscious and awash in the surf that was attempting to drown me, I was saved by the cross. Whew. That's it. That's the whole deal unconscious, lost, doomed, and awash in a raging surf of my own lust and fear and hatred and bondage, I was saved by the cross. That's the whole message. There isn't anything else. The book of Revelation is not just some scary opera, but reduce it to the microcosm of that one life, that one person about whom you care standing before the white throne judgment of God and let that propel you. Let the Holy Spirit say, come. And let an obedient bride say, come. Come in. The doors are still open. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you. I give you honor and glory. I, I don't even know how to thank you. When I was face down in the gutter, when I was lost, doomed, undone, filled with despair, God, you saved me. God, that you would allow me to even stand in this auditorium and, and preach the, the, the message to, to go anywhere, anytime. God, what an honor, what a privilege. Who am I? Who am I? Lord, I know that these feet were the same feet that, that, that rushed into sin. Weren't, weren't my eyes filled with lust? Didn't I speak with great swelling words of blasphemy? Didn't I speak lies and yet you still forgave me? Still you healed me? Still you, you washed me? Still you cleansed me? Oh God, I, I thank you and I praise you. I don't want to ever forget where you brought me from. I don't want to ever forget what you've done in my life. I don't want to ever forget. I, I drove my car right to the edge of that cliff, oh God, and somehow you stopped me. And so now, Lord, I say, oh God, please make me a soul winner. I pray that for everybody watching this, everybody listening to these words. Oh God, move us with your compassion. Make us soul winners. Fill us with the love of God. Fill us with the love of Christ. Help us to see people. To see them the way that you see them. To know, oh God, that without you, Jesus, there is no hope for them. That they are destined to stand in that place of judgment. And in that moment, there will be no, no recourse any longer. No more hope. But God, right now, we know the door is open. We know the door is wide open. So God, I pray that you would help us to carry this message of grace, the full message, the full truth, always speaking with love, always speaking with grace, but speaking the whole truth. And I pray, God, that you would fill our hearts with such love and compassion that our hearts would be so broken as people are plunging toward that, 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 that the gorge that where the bridge is out. That God, that we would, that they would see that, that when we speak to them, it's not out of a sense of duty, it's not out of a sense of judgment, but God, that they will see the love of Christ in us. And God, that your kindness would lead them to repentance. Lord, I pray that you would help us. We give what we have to you. And Lord, I know we're all different, we're wired differently. And I'm not saying, God, that anybody has to. Do it in the same way as anybody else. But God, I pray that you'd help us to tell those whom we love, those that we meet, those whom we do business with. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to tell them about Jesus. I pray that you'd soften their hearts. Before that, soften our hearts. Use us, God. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.